Tonight, we are going to take a break from our study of Psalm 119, and we're going to be in 1 John, the book of 1 John. That's getting to the end of the Bible there. It's before 2 John and 3 John, I promise you that, after 2 Peter. 1 John 4, 7 through 12, I've learned to hopefully work efficiently in ministry, and I did a wedding yesterday, and Desiree wanted me to preach 1 John 4, 7 at her wedding. Uh, which I did, but rather than study, you know, multiple passages over the course of the week, I thought, well, let's just take this study and we'll apply it to the wedding, and then we'll look at it a little more thoroughly on Sunday night. So that's why we're in 1 John 4, uh, verses uh, 7 through 12. Really just looked at verse 7 in the wedding, so this is uh, a little bit more, but that's the reason uh, that we're here tonight. So 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12, hear God's Word read for you now. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Your congregation in his book, How to Read the Bible Through the Jesus Lens, Michael Williams summarizes the book of 1 John this way. He says, the Apostle John is getting on in years, but he still has work to do. In a fatherly, deeply caring letter, he gives his dear children in the faith the benefit of his decades of reflection on the fundamental truths regarding life in Christ. His letter is prompted by the blather of some in the churches who thought they knew more than the apostles or even Jesus himself. These misguided souls maintained that Jesus wasn't really human and divine. John's response to this attempted dagger to the heart of the gospel is both passionate and profound. He asserts that God's relentless, redemptive love for us requires Jesus to be both human and divine. And that this love of God, displayed in Jesus Christ, should be displayed in all those in whom His Spirit dwells, end quote. I'll read that for you to give you a little bit of an introduction to the book of 1 John, but also because in our text this evening, John is making just that last point, that the love of God displayed in Jesus Christ should now be displayed in all those in whom Christ's Spirit dwells. Our text tonight begins with this instruction, Beloved, let us love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. Now, the simple fact that John calls us to love one another is, I think, telling, because it implies... Maybe we don't love one another naturally. I mean, 
if my children naturally clean their room, there would probably not be the command in our house frequently throughout the week to clean your room. Uh, if uh, I shouldn't just pick on my children, but it's so easy, and it's Sunday night, so I'm losing creativity. If the children naturally gave uh, food to the cats and the chickens, right, I wouldn't have to tell them to make sure the chickens and the cats have food, right? And the same is true with this command to love one another. If we naturally loved one another, uh, then we wouldn't need God's Word to tell us so often to love one another. The fact is, we don't naturally love one another. As sinners, we are people who naturally love ourselves. Self-love is our default position. Uh, Sinners are people who naturally exalt themselves over and above others and, and who seek to serve themselves over and above others. That's the sorts of things that sinners do. And so when John gives us instruction, when he says, Beloved, let us love one another, he is most certainly confronting that sinful and selfish tendency that exists within all of our hearts. Now, after giving us this instruction to love one another, John goes on to root this command in three spiritual realities. That is, he goes on to give us three reasons, ultimately, why we are or why we must love one another. And the first reason he gives us is, is, is because of who God is. We see this in verses 7b and 8. John says, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. He's rooting the command to love one another in the truth of who God is. And in verses 7b and 8, John tells us really two things about who God is. He tells us that God is the source of love. He says, love is from God. That means, that means God is the source of love. That means love comes from God, like water comes from a spring, or like smoke comes from a fire. Love is from God. That means God is the source and the origin and the fountain of love. It means that wherever, wherever true love exists in this world, whether it's between a parent and a child, whether it's between a brother and a sister, whether it's between a friend and a friend or a husband and a wife, right? Wherever true love exists, we see a trail leading ultimately to God from whom it came. Love is from God. And just a simple, quick application here. Certainly that means then when we, when we want grace and strength to love others as we're called to, well, we would do well to look to God for it, right? We would do well to ask God for it. God, give me grace to love like you love. That's a worthy prayer request because love is from God. John not only tells us that God is the source of love, but God also, or John also tells us here that, that God just, He just is love. There are four times in Scripture when God is said to be something. John 4, 24 says God is spirit. Hebrews 12, 29 says, God is a consuming fire. That's actually in Deuteronomy as well. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light. And 1 John 4, 9 says, God is love. Now, when John says God is love, 
He does not mean that, that love is one of God's many activities, all right? He does not mean like, you know, sometimes God loves and sometimes God um, judges and sometimes God is holy and sometimes God is... Like, that, that's not what he means. He doesn't mean that, that love is one of God's many activities. He means that all of God's activity is loving. He means there is nothing God does that isn't in love. Even when He chastens His children, we know that's in love. God is treating you as sons. When God brings justice against the evildoer, it's in love that He does these things. And I've, I've said that to you before, right? A good, a good judge, a, a judge who loves his neighbor doesn't let an evildoer go free on the street, does he? A good, loving judge is going to punish the evildoer. Even when God punishes the wicked, that is in love, okay? God is love. Love is fundamental to His being. There is nothing God does that isn't in love. Now, what John tells us in these verses is that, is that loving one another is a mark of those who know who God is, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Love is the mark of those who know who God is. Love is the mark of those who have come to know that God is the source of love and that, that God is in Himself love and that all of His ways are full of love and that everything He does is all of love. Right? Those who know that, love. And so the first spiritual reality that John roots the command in to love one another is, is just simply the truth of who God is. God is the source of love. God is Himself love. The second reason John gives us to love one another is this. It's because of what God did. It's because of what God did. We see this in verses 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God is love. John has told us that. And now he tells us that the supreme manifestation of God's love was in the sending of His one and only Son, to die on the cross for our sins. Sinclair Ferguson says, how you view God determines the quality and style of your Christian experience. Many Christians spend much of their lives paralyzed in fear because although they have trusted in Christ as Savior, they have never really seen what His sacrifice teaches us about the character of God. He gave His Son. He sent His Son. He handed over His Son. Why? Because He loves us. End quote. The supreme manifestation of God's love is in the sending of His one and only Son to die on the cross for our sins. If I might put it another way, and this is what Ferguson was getting at, Jesus did not come and die on the cross to make God love us. Jesus didn't come and die on the cross to persuade God to love us. No, Jesus came and Jesus died on the cross because God loves us. Jesus came out of that love which the Father pledged to us in eternity past or placed upon us in eternity past. 
And note why God loves us. That's clear too here. It's not because we're so lovable. <laughs> it's just because God is love. Right? It's because God is love. Now, after pointing us to the supreme manifestation of God's love on the cross, listen to what John says at the end of verse 11. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. John's point there is this, right? Listen, no one who has been to the cross and who has beheld the love of God at the cross should go back to a life of selfishness. His point is, is, you know, the the amazing display of God's love for us at the cross of Jesus, it, it should move us and motivate us and enable us to love one another. The cross should have that effect on you. In light of what God did at Calvary, you ought to love one another. That's how that should work. That's the dynamic at play here. If you can't love your brother, it makes us wonder if you've ever actually beheld the love of God at the cross. Because no one, John says, no one who has actually beheld the love of God at Calvary can go back to a life of selfishness. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also love one another. Matthew Henry says, this should be an invincible argument. The example of God should press us. We should be followers of Him as His dear children. The objects of the divine love should be the objects of ours. Shall we refuse to love those whom the eternal God hath loved? We should be admirers of His love and lovers of His love and consequently lovers of those whom He loves. The general love of God to the world should induce a universal love among us towards all mankind. And the peculiar love of God to the church and to the saints should be productive of a peculiar love in us towards them. If God so loved us, we ought surely to love one another. The third and final reason John gives us to love one another is this, right? So the first one is because of who God is, and then because of what God did. The final reason is this, it's because of what God is doing. It's because of what God is doing. We see this in verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And His love is made complete in us. It's uh, interesting that this is not the only time John uses the phrase, no one has ever seen God. We see that phrase here in verse 12. It's not the only time, it's not even the first time John uses this phrase. He also uses it in his gospel. If you want, if your Bibles are open, turn there with me if you would. John chapter, John chapter 1. I should have bookmarked it. John chapter 1. We see it in verse 18. John 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God. See that same phrase right there. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So right there, John is saying, right, no one has ever seen God, and yet someone has made God known, and in context, that is, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one 
who is also God and who is at the Father's side and who has made God known, right? So John says, no one has ever seen God, and yet then he points to Jesus as the one who has made God known. And now we go back to 1 John 4. We see that same language in verse 12, right? Verse 12 of 1 John 4 begins with the same words as verse 18 of John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. And yet now he says this, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. His point now in 1 John 4 is not now that that Jesus makes God known. His point now is that the mutual love of Spirit-filled believers makes God known. So, God the Father is where love originates, and God the Father's love manifested itself in the most supreme way uh, in God the Son at Calvary. But now, presently, God's love manifests itself through God the Spirit who indwells believers. That's kind of the, the train that's going on here. John Stott puts it this way, the unseen God who was once revealed in His Son is now revealed in His people if and when they love one another. God's love is seen in their love because their love is imparted to them by His Holy Spirit. So God is love, and God revealed His love in the most profound of ways at a definite point in history through the giving of His Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet that love which originates in God and which was made manifest in Christ It's still seen today in the lives of God's believing people. That's what we're being told here. So what is God doing today? Well, well God God is making Himself known and making His love known through the mutual love of His people. In the mutual love that God's people have for each other, He reveals The love He has for us in much the same way He reveals His love for us in and through Christ at the cross of Calvary. That's what we're being told here. Now, there's actually more here in verse 12, and it's not only that God is revealing Himself today in the mutual love of His people, but it's that His love is actually being perfected in us. That's what we read at the end of verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. And so what we're being told here is nothing short of this. The love which originates in God the Father, which supremely manifests itself in God the Son, now finds not just expression, but but completion, but perfection in the lives of Spirit-filled believers who love one another. That's quite remarkable. That God's love, that that love which originated in eternity past when God chose for Himself a people in Christ, and that love which was supremely manifested in uh, the death of God's Son for our sin, that love, that amazing, gracious, unbelievable, unearnable love is perfected in us through the mutual love of believers. It's quite remarkable. In fact, fact, that's one of those things that's so remarkable that I'm not even sure we can fully grasp what that means and how that works, that God's love is perfected in us through our mutual love 
for one another. This much we do know, however, this much we can grasp, however, and is that something profoundly wonderful is taking place when God's children love one another. That much is sure. Once again, John Stott says, it would be hard to exaggerate the greatness of this conception. It is so daring that many commentators have been reluctant to accept it and have suggested other translations for the Greek, such as our love for God is made complete or God-like love is made complete. But the whole paragraph, Stott says, is concerned with God's love, and we must not stagger at the majesty of this conclusion. God's love, which originates in Himself and was manifested in His Son, is made perfect in His people. But then Stott adds a a needed caveat, which really drives home, I think, the application. He says, God's love for us is perfected only when it is reproduced in us within the Christian fellowship. God's love for us is perfected only when it is reproduced in in us within the Christian fellowship. This is kind of a, right, it's it's reproduced when believers love one another. Sort of takes two. (laughs) That's the concept there, right? This love is perfected within the Christian fellowship, within the church. So as we, as we love others, and as we struggle to love others, maybe you've seen this play out. You've sort of seen how this, how this might work, but you have, you have a family uh, of God in your local church, and you're called to love these people, and, 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 and you do love them, and sometimes you have an awfully hard time loving them. But as you love them, and as you have a hard time loving them, and as you see what it costs to love them, you do sort of gain a deeper sense of God's love for you in Christ, don't you? Sometimes our negative example that we set helps us appreciate what we have in Christ. Sometimes, sometimes my, my impatience with people can help me appreciate the patience God has with me and just how wonderful God is with me. And likewise, as we experience the kindness and love of others... We also, in that context, can gain a deeper sense of God's love for us in Christ. God's love is perfected within the Christian fellowship. God's love is perfected amongst spirit-filled believers. And certainly, certainly... That gives us a reason to be part of a community of believers, does it not? I mean, sometimes people, why do I have to be a part of the church? I mean, the New Testament knows nothing of a churchless Christian, but, you know, there's no commandment, thou shalt, you know, be a part of a church, and I can just sort of do this thing on my own. And I would say, John says, no, you can't. (laughs) You can't. Because what we're being told here is essentially this, it's, it takes the church ultimately, and it takes the church remarkably to perfect the love of God in you. That's what it takes. That's the way God has ordered all of this to work. You need others. You need a one another factor for God's love to be made perfect in you. So it gives us a reason, perhaps the best reason. To be sure that we're a part of a community of believers. Because it's in that community that the love of God is perfected in us. Of course, that only happens as we love one another in this community. 
So, beloved, by all means, in closing, let us love one another. Let's pray. Our great and awesome God, we give you thanks and praise for your love. That love which has arose out of your own heart because you are love, that love which was bestowed upon your people, the elect, already in eternity past, that love which was made manifest in Christ who went to the cross for our redemption, that love which is still seen today in the mutual love of your Spirit-filled people. Thank you for that love and help us, Lord, to love one another by your grace so that your love might in some remarkable way be perfected in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand for the parting blessing and then we'll sing our closing song together. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen.